Good Saturday morning to you, everybody, and welcome to Mortgage Matters with Rob Weinberg. I'm Gary Byron. Great to see you, Rob. How you been, buddy? Good. How about yourself? Oh, man. You know, I could complain, but nobody likes a complainer. Nobody wants to listen to me. They listen to you, though. How was your week? It was great. Yeah, you look good. Thank Got you. Got a nice haircut. Look yep, at you all yep. dapper here on this. Uh, Ready to go. On the week. You look, you look fantastic. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. How's business, by the way? It's been really crazy lately, especially with all the home buyers out there. I know, right? They're dry, and they're dropping interest rates and, and the whole nine yards. You know what? Let's talk a little. Since, we're, since you mentioned that, let's talk a little this morning about um, preparing, preparing to get a mortgage. Want to do that? Let's do it. All right. Um, how long before getting a mortgage, mortgage should someone, I guess, maybe start the preparation work? You know, I think generally you want to start the prep around six to 12 months that before long? you're ready. Yeah, Whoa. that long ahead. And I would say even longer if you have issues with your credit or your income, down payment challenges, that sort of thing. The first question I ask someone that calls me out of the blue is, have you had challenges in the past with your credit, with your income or your down payment? What if you don't know? That's the whole point of getting in touch with a lender early. We can tell you that based on a conversation, based on some questions. And now when you do that ahead of time, we've got the time to fix things. We've got the time to make adjustments. If you call me a week before or right when you're ready to buy a house, unless you have great credit, great income and plenty of money in the bank, it might be difficult to meet those timelines. And I'm really talking here to these home buyers First-time home buyers, second-time home buyers maybe haven't been through the process. They don't know what's required from a credit standpoint. They don't know how much money they need, like we've talked about before. If you're someone that already owns a home and you're thinking about refinancing, you don't need as much lead time. You already own a property. So call the lender right away and let's mm. get you ready to go. We could move forward immediately. But again, I'm more talking to people that need that long-term preparation, but a minimum of six to 12 months. Even if you think everything is perfect, get with a lender six For months For everybody or, or, or just a first-time home buyer? I really think everyone. What's oh, wow. the, the best case scenario is we say, hey, you're ready. You can rock and roll. Let's get this done. Worst case scenario, though, and we're saying you got to work on this on your credit. Pay this credit card down. Change this. Pay this account off. And we can give you some coaching. You know, you can't do that again mm. if you're a week, a month out. This stuff takes time. It's especially relevant for self-employed people that may have income challenges. There's a lot of things that go into getting a mortgage when you're self-employed that are different from just a W-2 wage earner with a salary or hourly position. We need that extra time to make things really look the way they need to. So what I find interesting is, so it's the middle of uh, April right now. If you are looking to buy a home next April, right now, is when you should really start putting the effort in and start calling you and make an appointment and finding out where your credit score is and so on and so forth. I have people all the time that get in touch with me and say, I'm really not, my lease isn't up till November. I had a gentleman call me mm. yesterday from New York saying, I'm moving to, to Connecticut when my lease is up in November, got my job, everything ready to go. He's had credit challenges. He's listened to the show. He understands what's no. going on with that. So now we're getting him ready. And in that conversation, we actually uncovered a major hurdle. I oh, mean, sure. major. Yeah. And he's now in his head, ready to go. I'm, I'm moving in November. I said, wait, step back a second. You just switched from being W-2 employee to self-employed. 
You are not getting a mortgage in November. There's no way to do that when you switch like that. So we got to recalibrate now. We have to look at your timelines and see what's realistic. Again, you're better off knowing that 6, 12, 18 months ahead of time than you are calling me in September saying, I'm I'm moving, my lease is up, I'm moving to Connecticut, I got a job line. Well, wait a second, no, oh. that's not gonna work, you know? And that's what he didn't realize when he called me, but that's why he did it, to understand. He was better off keeping the job, getting the mortgage, and then going w, uh, 1099 exactly, later Exactly, and that's on. what we talked about, though, was that strategy of saying, okay, you're moving to Connecticut, make sure the job that you get here is structured as a W-2 wage earner where you're going to get a set amount. That's the only way that you're going to be able to get the property in the timeline you want. Being self-employed for six months or even a year in almost all cases is going to disqualify you from getting a mortgage. You need to have a a history of at least two years when it comes to self-employment. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, well, I'm going to be making more money. So that shouldn't be a problem, but it's not about what money you're making. It's how are you making that money? Can we document it? Are there expenses involved? And that's the big challenge with self-employment when you've only been doing it a short time. We can't show the underwriter what your expenses are. Yeah, we can show you made all this money, but what about what it costs to make that money? I get you. So, all right. So someone's thinking to themselves, uh, all right, so my credit isn't good or I don't have enough money to buy a home. Should they still talk to a lender, though? Absolutely, unequivocally. This is one of those scenarios where the sooner you talk, the better. And I have a client that called me yesterday that is looking to buy a home. They knew they had credit challenges. They said, I know I need to fix it. I just don't know what to do. Sure. The sooner that you get, and they knew this, the sooner I speak with a lender, the better off I'm going to be because I don't have a strategy. I don't have direction. So the earlier, the better and the you know better advice that we can give you. You want to plan a long-term strategy to get your credit where it needs to be. That can take three to six or even 12 months. If you've got a credit score in the 500s, it's not going to go to 600 overnight. It's going to take some time sure, and it's going to take some strategy. You need to know what to do. If you don't have money saved for a down payment or you have a really small amount, a lot of people, as we've discussed, think, oh, all I need is you know 3%. Three and a half percent down, but that's not it. What about closing costs? What about escrow prepaid expenses that we have to pay? You don't know about that as a buyer if you haven't bought a house before, or maybe you bought a house years ago. This stuff's always changing. If we can set the stage and say, hey, you're almost there, you're two thousand dollars away from where you need to be for the price range. If I tell you that a couple months ahead, you've got a shot. You call me two weeks ahead, how are you going to save that amount of money? It's going to dash your dreams. It's going to change your entire trajectory of buying a home. And in a lot of cases, it's going to put you down and out. You're not going to be feeling good about it. There's a real empowerment that comes from being prepared to buy a home. You know, and, and also nobody knows what the closing costs will be, right? Or sometimes is that often picked up by... Another person, like like the seller, or sometimes it is. I've heard you it say that. It used to be, and it's not as common anymore. So how much can a closing cost be? Closing costs in Connecticut, you really want to prepare. And I heard a realtor say this on a, on another show a couple weeks ago. They said 4 to 5% of the price of the home for closing costs. I think that might That's be so on the higher. High. It is on the higher side, but here's the Ooh. thing is there's two pieces of closing costs. There's loan costs, which are 
mortgage fees, underwriting fees, processing fees, attorney's costs, title insurance. Those are loan costs. But there's another part of it, which is prepaid expenses, escrow accounts for taxes and insurance. These aren't fees, but these are deposits that have to be put up front when you buy a home, especially if you're a first time buyer or you're putting a low down payment. In almost all cases, you are required to fund what's called an escrow account for your property taxes and insurance so that the mortgage company can pay those. Well, if your taxes are due in July, as they are in most areas of Connecticut, mm -hmm. and you're buying a house in April, how is there going to be enough money <laughs> in there if you've only made a mortgage payment or two? So the way that we get around that, the protocol, so to speak, is that we fund an escrow account so that there's enough money in there to pay both the property taxes when they're due, the home insurance when it's due, and if you're in a flood zone, the flood insurance as well would be included in that. Wow. That can add several percentage points. As you know, with taxes in Connecticut, they can be two, three percent of the sale of the uh, price of the home in a lot of areas, especially the higher priced ones. So you have to have that money on top of your closing costs, on top of your down payment. And most home buyers, even if they've done this before, they forget about that. If it's been a lot of years, maybe, oh, yeah, I remember I needed some money, but they don't remember how much. And everyone just touts this, hey, low down payment, 3%, 3.5%. And then people get that and they're like, I'm ready to buy a home. No, you're not. Know your numbers. Get with a lender. Like you said, we're not going to know down to the penny, but we're going to be able to give you a good idea. I love overestimating on that. I've never had a client that gets mad at me that I told them they needed 12000 and they only needed ten. And this is my protocol that I go through is I overestimate maybe by Smart. a thousand or two because there's so many unknowns. Yeah. There really are. If I overestimate a little bit and then at the end of the day, you need less money. And I'm talking about 500, a thousand, a couple thousand less. They get so relieved. It's like, oh, yes, now I've got that extra couple thousand for furniture, for moving expenses. You yeah. see? Yeah. I, and just listening to you sparks uh, another question. And this may take a, a, a few minutes, but- if you can't take this, and I'm glad I'm asking this early, early into the show, talk about the timeline. Discuss the timeline on the entire pre-approval process. Absolutely. So assuming your credit and your down payment are ready to go and you're in a good position, we can pre-approve you right away. And what I mean by that is you want to figure around one week. And what that entails is we're going to review your credit. We're going to review what you tell us you make. Based on those two pieces, as well as the money you have for down payment and closing, we can reverse engineer it and say, here's about how much you're going to qualify for, 300000 400000 whatever the amount is, you've got the financials to make these numbers work. The next step, though, in what a lot of lenders are dropping the ball on lately, as real estate pros will tell you, is they're not taking the next step of the pre-approval, which is verifying the information. If you tell me you make 50 grand a year, I may look at your pay stub and you only make 47,000 a year or you make 58,000. You know, people just have this uh, very general way of talking about how much money they have in the bank, what their credit is, how much they have, uh, you know, in income. So we need to verify that. 
Do investments count towards that? What if somebody has whole life insurance? Absolutely. We're going to want to get all of the information on your investment accounts, your bank accounts, not only the money you're using for closing, but also what we call reserve, which is money you're going to have available after closing. A lot of loan programs, especially if you're buying a multifamily house or an investment property, they're going to require that you have money after closing. You can't clean out your bank account to zero. The underwriters want to see that there's money available after to help with, especially in multifamilies, uh, if your tenant doesn't pay. Can you still make that mortgage payment? Do you have money in the bank in an investment account? Like you said, whole life insurance. So have that first. Have your whole life insurance prior. Have it before you get your mortgage. Whole life insurance is a sophisticated financial tool wealthy have used for years. I would say most first-time buyers in this market are not coming in with a cash value life insurance plan. It'd be great if they did, but they're not. I'm more talking about savings, money market, 401k, IRA, investment accounts, you know, your brokerage accounts, uh, that sort of thing. That's the most common. And a lot of people don't realize or understand that they can use those investment accounts towards the reserve. We're not actually taking money out. We're just showing you have it available for a rainy day, for an emergency. So that's what it's all about. But figure a week. Once you get me your documents, a couple days later, they'll be very thoroughly reviewed, and then we can issue a full pre-approval. So I want to make a distinction here. If somebody is giving you the ability to buy a home to say you're approved for a mortgage, just based on a conversation, that is not a pre-approval. That's what we would call a pre-qualification. In this market, it's not going to get you very far. It really isn't. But if we take that next step, which every single mortgage professional I know that's been doing this any good length of time that knows the game is going to have you verify your documentation. If they're not, it's a red flag. They need to verify your income. We'll talk about different types of documentation here, but income, assets, credit, like I said, we need to look at everything on paper and then I can issue you a pre-approval and I can put on there, I verified your income. I verified your assets. I've done all this. So then when I get a call from a realtor saying, hey, we just got an offer from Joe Smith on this property What's he all about? What's your relationship with him? I can tell them I vetted you. You got great credit. You have the income. I verified your assets. You got plenty of money in the bank. You have investments. It's going to put your offer at the top of the stack. That's what you want. And one week is what I'm talking about from the day you call your lender, your advisor, Mm -hmm. until the day you get the pre-approval letter in your hands. We're talking about it could be less than that, but be prepared for about a week. I've had people call me on a Monday give me their documents on Tuesday, and they have a full pre-approval on Wednesday. It can be that quick if you're dealing with a real professional that knows how to do it, but anticipate about a week. Wow. Speaking of those documents that you just mentioned, what kind of documents do I need to have prepared uh, for our meeting, let's just say? Sure. So In advance. You definitely need to have your government-issued photo ID. No matter what your scenario is, driver's license. Driver's license. Also, if you're here uh, on a green card, you can absolutely get a mortgage. We need to show that you're a legal resident of the country. Mm-hmm. Green card is the most common, both sides of that green card. And uh, just like you said, identity documents. Some people don't have a driver's license. They have a different type of government ID, like a passport. It's absolutely fine. It just needs to be a government-issued photo ID. So that's your identity documents. The next thing is going to be if you're a wage earner, if you're someone that gets a paycheck stub every week from your job, we're going to want to see a month worth of pay stubs, the most recent month. 
So if you get paid twice a month, that'd be two paycheck stubs. If you get paid every week, that'd be your most recent four paycheck stubs. We need the entire pay stub, top to bottom. We need to see the year to date information, your name. Some people send me like a screenshot of a half a pay stub that just shows what they made for the week, or it shows a direct deposit into their bank account. That's not gonna fly. We need the entire paycheck stub. Most people nowadays can get that from an online portal through their uh, sure. through their job where they have their payroll. The next thing is going to be W-2s. Again, if you're a wage earner, which most people are, it's going to be your most recent two years of W-2 forms. So, you know, 2019 and 2020 W-2. Not necessarily the whole tax return. We don't necessarily need that if you're just a wage earner, but we want the one-page W-2. And that is the form that you get from your job saying how much you made that year. What if, though... Somebody just received a promotion. They got a significant raise, but it's not reflective in their previous W-2 and certainly not the one from two years prior. That's not an issue at all. We'll get a job letter from your employer saying what your raise is, and then we can use that. Happens all the time. People are always getting raises. The other thing would be bank statements. You got to have, like we were just talking about, reserves, assets. That would be all pages. A lot of people make the mistake. They give the first page. It shows they have 13,000. That's not what we care about. The underwriters are looking at all the pages. Where are the transactions? Where'd the money come from? What's going in? What's going out? All numbered pages. If it says page one of 12, we need all 12. Even if one of them says this page is blank. We still need that page. Very, very picky. From like someone's savings account, let's say, or... Every account that you have that we're going to document, we need all the pages of that bank account, investment account, or whatnot. And if you're divorced, we need your divorce paperwork, divorce decree, separation agreement. Again, all pages. I didn't even know I had a savings account booklet, book. I mean, I know the booklet, your little ledger, but to actually have pages of book, nor for a checking account or even a savings account. Very fascinating. But let's switch gears and talk about self-employed before we go on, because I know there's so many self-employed people listening. Give me one second, folks. You are listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show with Rob Weinberg. I'm Gary Byron. Their phone number, in case you're interested, in, uh, write this down, 860-413-3938. Go ahead, Rob. Absolutely. So talking to self-employed, the Mm -hmm. documentation requirements are going to be different. And I know a lot of self-employed people have a lot of trepidation and they get worried about applying for a mortgage. Maybe they were denied before. Maybe they were inundated by the amount of paperwork. So I'm talking about right now what's required is you're going to want to have two years of your tax returns. Some loan programs only require one if you've been self-employed a long time, but be prepared with the most recent two years of your federal income tax return. The next thing is going to be bank statements for your business. Right now, underwriting is looking at the most recent three months bank statements due to COVID. They want to see that you didn't just have a good year in 2019 and your business went belly up during the pandemic. We got to see the most recent three months. What do you have coming in? Is your revenue or your deposits in that bank account in line with previous years? If we're using $100,000 a year and you're only depositing three grand a month in your bank account, Huge red flag. That's why the bank statements are required. And last but not least for the self-employed right now is going to be profit and loss statements. So they're going to want to see a year-to-date profit and loss from January of this year through whenever you're applying for the mortgage. It doesn't necessarily have to be audited. It can be written up just on a simple spreadsheet, but that'll show, again, that you're in line with your income, your income versus your expenses. 
and it'll help to support that when you're self-employed. You can print a lot of this stuff out of a QuickBooks program or an accounting program. A lot of my self-employed clients have their accountants set up mm -hmm. and they'll just send an email and say, hey, I need this, this, and this, and the accountant can print it very, very quickly. How would you know where to find the perfect lender? That's a great question, Gary, because most people don't realize how to find a great lender. I'll no. tell you the number one spot and where most of my clients find me, other than referrals from past clients, is online reviews. Oh, If okay. somebody's got hundreds of online reviews, five star, that's a pretty good indication that they know what they're doing. Not only in the mortgage space, but in anything. In, if you're going for knee surgery, would you want the doctor that's <laughs> right. done it a thousand times that has a bunch of five star reviews? Or would you want the guy that's got three reviews no, of course. or five right. reviews? Right. So that's the number one spot is to go on Google or a search engine and find reviews to find that lender. So that's number one. Number two would be a referral from a realtor. Most real oh. estate professionals that have been in the game any long amount of time have some lenders that they've worked with that have a track record of success that have gotten from the application to the pre-approval to the closing table with minimal issues. So that's another great place is if you have a realtor, they can give you some referrals. And the last one, and again, where I get a ton of business is repeat and referrals. Of so course. people yeah. that have worked with me before, their son's buying a home, their cousin's buying a home, a friend, a coworker, that's where you're talking and you say, hey, who'd you use? Or they say, hey, I've got a great lender that I've worked with before and you get their contact information. That's gonna be way better than any other method. But there's gotta be some red flags, I would imagine, that you should be looking for from a mortgage company or even a loan officer. There are some really big red flags. Yeah, and one imagine. of the great things is that there's something now called the NMLS, which stands for National Mortgage Licensing System. This is a website that I'll give you here in a second that you can go in and you can put the ID number of your mortgage originator, your loan officer. That ID number is a several digits long and it's attached to that person. No matter what company they work for, it's attached to their license. You can see their employment history. Hmm. You can see any regulatory actions against them. You can verify their license. Okay, the website is nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Again, nmlsconsumeraccess.org. You can go there, it's completely free. You can put in the ID number or the NMLS ID of the mortgage officer that you're speaking with mm -hmm. and you can get all that information about them. It's a red flag if that's not even on their email signature because it's supposed oh. to be. It's got to be. It should be on their business card, their email signature. You should be able to say to them on the phone, hey, what's your NMLS ID? Everybody has one. <laughs> and I'll bet one. nobody, have, nobody nope. asks that because they don't know to. I'll tell you right now, mine is 80786, okay? <laughs> Any mortgage originator should know that. And again, it should be on all their identifying info, including an advertisement. It should have that wow. in the fine print. So you can go before you even call, type in their ID number, see, are they who they say they are? Where'd they work? What's their employment history? How long have they been with the mortgage company they're with? Do they have regulatory actions against them? It'll show wow. if they've had infractions actions if they've had issues. If they're talking to you in Connecticut as someone buying a home, but it doesn't show that they're licensed in Connecticut, huge red flag. You don't want to be dealing with that person. And experience matters, as we've discussed. You can see how long they've been doing mortgages. You'd be surprised with some of these online lenders, I put in the ID number and they've been doing mortgages for three months. Before that, they were working at Sunglass Hut. Is that somebody that you want 
dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars, dealing wow. with the biggest financial transaction you make. This is how you find these red flags. Wow. I had no idea. I really don't. Now, what about, I, in fact, I didn't, I didn't even know there was even by state by state. Well, it's a national system now. Okay. This is, came after the but housing they, Why even bother advertising in a state that you're not authorized to? Because people put their a deal through and somebody they know. Oh, and but would it still be valid? Back. No, it's it's illegal. It happens all the time, unfortunately. But, it, I mean, it's illegal. It's against the law. You can't do it. That's why they have these licensing requirements. But that's how you can vet this person is if they're talking wow. to you about buying a house in Connecticut or getting a mortgage in Connecticut, Make sure their license their license shows online that they're licensed in Connecticut. What if they got an infraction years ago and now they're not licensed in Connecticut? Yeah. They're going to put that deal through their buddy, that is, and get a kickback. Huge red flag. Stay away. Do not move forward. Can I switch lenders? And I know we're running out of time, but this is so important. Can I switch lenders after starting the process with somebody else? You can switch lenders. It happens. It's definitely frowned upon. Because you do so much work up front to get the approval done, to get the documentation, to get a relationship. Uh, but there's some, some sometimes there's good reasons though too. There are, but you want to spend time up front interviewing several lenders. If you're gonna shop around, if you're going to, you know, talk to several people, use that time to vet them. Ask the right questions as we're discussing here. Look them up online. Make sure that everything is good to go so that you don't have to switch lenders. Okay. If you do that vetting up front, you're mm -hmm. not going to need to switch. It's that simple. But like you said, there are reasons that you might need to. Yeah. I mean, nobody nobody goes into it wanting to do that. But, you know, you just mentioned some red flags that we should be looking for. And I can't imagine already commencing the, the, the process only to discover after the fact that, oh, man, there's I, I, I got to stop. I got to stop. With I this would lending. say that's the minimal one. Uh, you know, like we said, most people just don't take the time to do that vetting up front. But the real reasons why you'd want to consider switching would be if the communication is just not there. If wow. they started the process and then they fall off the face of the earth and you can't reach them. Yeah. This is a business that's constantly moving. I mean, look, everyone's Well, that's busy, a big red flag, too. But that's a reason that you'd switch lenders is they're not communicating with you. They're not discussing things. You need to switch to someone that's more responsive. The other thing is the numbers change. They tell you up front, oh, yeah, this is what your interest rate's going to be or give you, you know, some idea of that. Then you go to lock in your rate and it's significantly different or the payment is significantly uh -huh. different or they tell you you're going to need 15000 for closing and then we get ready and that's it. It doubles. Oh, man. Has this been some valuable information? I'll bet most people don't even know about the MLSConsumerAccess.org uh, website. Very, very key. Folks, uh, my goodness, write this. Talk about writing something down. Write this down. 860-413-3938. Um, I'm going to repeat that for you. That's how important it is. And I'll give you an extra a couple of seconds if you need to get yourself a piece of paper or a pencil. Um, write it down, 860-413-3938. Incredibly important number for you to reach Rob Weinberg himself. This is you might you're gonna want to make an appointment with him as soon as you possibly can. What is your website really quick? Yep, robgw.com. Robgw.com. For Rob Weinberg. 
I'm Gary Byron. Thank you so much for listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show. Until next Saturday, have a good one, everybody. So long.